and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Kahn. Thank you very much for listening. Before we begin today, I'd like to get some housekeeping items out of the way first. Firstly, if you've visited the eBay store or the Patreon page recently, I'd like to thank you. It's with your help that I'm able to continue keeping the show running. Secondly, this will be the final episode in our series on Joan of Arc. In two weeks, we will begin a new narrative, this one being about the Congo Free State, so be sure to tune in. Anyway, without further ado, let's begin. In the last episode of our series on Joan of Arc, we followed Joan, an illiterate peasant girl from a tiny village in eastern France, as she led French soldiers to victory at the Battle of Orléans, thus fulfilling one half of the mission given to her by her voices, the spirits of three Catholic saints claiming to be speaking on behalf of God himself. She then proceeded to fulfill the second half of this mission by leading Dauphin Charles, the legitimate but not yet crowned King of France, deep into enemy territory to the city of Rheims, where he was officially crowned as King Charles VII on July 17, 1429. King Charles's crowning was especially significant as it undermined English claims to the throne of France. England and their French allies, known as the Burgundians, were dealt a significant blow. Spirits were rather high in the French camp following Joan's victories at Orléans and Rheims. It was expected that the newly crowned king would capitalize on this momentum and go on to retake Paris and Normandy. But, after one half-hearted attempt to retake Paris, Charles VII began negotiations with Duke Philip the Good of Burgundy, his estranged relative and England's ally. A truce of four months was secured, but at a relatively high cost. The Duke of Burgundy demanded a number of strategically important cities in northeastern France in exchange for his compliance. When the King of France was slow in handing over these cities, the Duke of Burgundy went on the offensive once more. Joan, finally spurred out of months of inaction, rushed off to the city of Compiègne, which was being besieged by the Burgundians. On May 23, 1430, Joan and a contingent of her men sallied forth from the walls of Compiègne to bring the fight to the Burgundian besiegers. The enemy forces ultimately proved too strong, and Joan and her men were forced to retreat. In the course of this retreat, Joan was captured. Details about Joan's capture are rather murky, but it should suffice to say that the Anglo-Burgundian faction was absolutely elated to have finally captured this girl, who had so struck fear into the hearts of their men-at-arms for the past year. Now technically a captive of Jean, the Duke of Luxembourg, who himself was a vassal of the Duke of Burgundy, Joan was ferried from castle to castle in northeastern France, as the duke weighed the fate of his new captive. While imprisoned in the fortress of Beaulieu-la-Fontaine, Joan made the first of her many escape attempts. Joan was captured alongside her brother and her squire, and upon learning that she was to be separated from them shortly, Joan decided to make a break for it. Through some sleight of hand, she was able to overpower her guard and lock him in her cell. She very nearly made it to the cells where her companions were being held, were it not for a guard who had spotted her at the last minute. Following this botched escape attempt, Joan was moved further to the northeast, to the fortress of Beaurevoir. Joan was actually treated rather humanely there, thanks to the intercession of another Joan, Joan of Luxembourg, aunt of the Duke of Luxembourg. Apparently, the Lady of Beaurevoir had some measure of sympathy for Joan, and what's more, she possessed a level of sway over her nephew. She requested that the Duke not hand Joan over to the English, it was during this time that Jean of Luxembourg was under quite a bit of pressure from the English to hand Joan over to be tried by them. The English articulated this desire through one Pierre Cauchon, the Bishop of Beauvais, and the former rector at the University of Paris. Cauchon was very much in the pocket of the English, to be sure, 
but he had his own motivations to see Joan brought to his idea of justice. For one, the triumphal entry of King Charles VII into Rheims that Joan had facilitated forced Cauchon to flee the city. Later, his own ecclesiastical seat of Beauvais opened its gates to the king, and Cauchon was once more forced to flee. What's more, Cauchon was, in a way, also representing the interests of the University of Paris itself. The faculty at the university almost unanimously believed Joan to be a heretic, and, if this could be proven, King Charles VII's cause would be greatly discredited. Thus, Cauchon aggressively lobbied the Duke on behalf of these interests to hand Joan over to English justice. The English were prepared to pay quite handsomely for the prisoner, 10,000 livres, which, by my admittedly very rough estimation, would have been equivalent to upwards of $5 million in modern currency. The only thing holding the Duke of Luxembourg back from sealing this deal was, again, his beloved aunt. Then, that September, Joan of Luxembourg died while visiting Avignon. With his aunt out of the picture, Jean of Luxembourg was now susceptible to the influence of the more pro-English factions of his court. Joan could sense that she might be handed over to the English soon. Preferring to die rather than to fall into their hands, Joan made her second escape attempt sometime in November. She leapt from the Tower of Beaurevoir, but this attempt too proved to be unsuccessful, and she was severely wounded in the fall. All this while, Charles VII seems to have made no great effort to rescue the girl to whom he owed his kingdom. The king could have launched a military campaign to rescue her, but no major battles were fought during this period. He could have even offered his own money to John of Luxembourg, to whom he was related, for Joan's release. He did neither. Why was this? Joan of Arc biographer Régine Parnaud puts forth three major reasons, the first of which being that the king felt threatened or emasculated by Joan. Despite Joan's exceedingly high opinion of him, Charles had never reciprocated this feeling. He was, quote, weak in character and of changeable temperament, end quote. He had a habitual suspicion of those around him, and it seems that Joan was not spared the king's distrust. Secondly, Charles may have seen Joan as a liability. As we have seen previously, following his coronation, King Charles had kept Joan at arm's length for that very reason. Her transgression of gender norms, as well as her claims to be in contact with the supernatural, made Joan a powerful symbol, to be sure, but a potentially dangerous one. Charges of witchcraft or heresy could easily stick to Joan, and thereby taint the king's reputation by virtue of their association. Thirdly, Charles had a very short window of time in which to act. From Joan's capture at Compiègne to her transfer into English custody, only about six months elapsed, and Charles and his court were kept more or less in the dark about it the entire time. A military campaign to rescue Joan was simply unfeasible, given the shaky state of French forces and the location of Joan's imprisonment deep within enemy territory. Furthermore, once Joan had been formally accused of a religious crime and handed off to ecclesiastical custody, there was no legal possibility of transfer back to the secular arm of justice. To summarize, perhaps the king already believed it beyond his abilities to rescue Joan. Regardless, on December 6, 1430, Jean of Luxembourg was paid the 10,000 livres for the transfer of Joan of Arc to English custody. The English, as well as the faculty of the University of Paris, were elated. A letter signed by the faculty and addressed to the King of England reads, in part, quote, We have recently heard that into your power has, has now been delivered the woman called the maid, at which we greatly rejoice, confident that by your good command this woman will be sent to justice in order to repair the great wickedness and scandals that have arisen notoriously in this kingdom on her account, 
to the great prejudice of the divine honor of our holy faith and to all of your good people. End quote. The next step for the English faction was to determine where Joan's trial would be held and what nature it would take. To prove Joan's heresy, and thereby to best tarnish the reputation of the French king, the trial would have to be an ecclesiastical one, in layman's terms, a trial conducted by the church itself. As Pierre Cauchon wished to oversee this trial, it stood to reason that it would be held in his diocese of Beauvais, but this was not a possibility at this time, as the town was occupied by French loyalists. Thanks to a legal loophole, a provision was made so that the trial could be held by Cauchon at the English stronghold of Rouen, the chief city of the Duchy of Normandy. From the very beginning, it was quite clear that Joan's trial was a politically motivated sham. On Christmas Eve, 1430, Joan was transferred to the prison of Rouen Castle, where she was treated far worse than she had been in the captivity of the Duke of Luxembourg. Here, the English ensured that she was kept in chains, even while in her cell, and at all hours of the day, she was guarded by half a dozen English soldiers. Despite the fact that this was an allegedly an ecclesiastical trial, Joan was being treated much like a prisoner of war would. Who was to judge Joan? A tribunal of 44 individuals of varying credentials, some experts in theology and canon law, others experts in civil law, but the most important part is that they had all been hand-picked by the English. The head English lackey, Pierre Cauchon, was, of course, presiding. One person who was supposed to be present from the very beginning was Jean Lemaitre, the Vice Inquisitor of France. It is quite likely that the Vice Inquisitor saw the trial for what it was, and he attempted to give some excuse or other to get out of his duty. Eventually, Lemaitre was forced by his superior to attend the trial, much to his chagrin. He arrived two months into the five-month-long trial, and going forward, his attendance was rather shoddy at best. There remained one glaring issue for the prosecution. They had nothing with which to charge Joan. A fact-finding mission dispatched by Cauchon to Domremy turned up nothing. In the words of one of the investigators, quote, I found nothing about Joan that I would not wish to find out about my own sister. End quote. The prosecution thought that they might be able to get Joan on her lack of virginity, but another inspection into the matter revealed that Joan was indeed still a virgin. Eventually, the prosecution had nothing to go on but what little they had gleaned from their initial interrogations of her. The first official session of the trial was held on February 21st, 1431. To begin, Joan was asked to swear an oath to tell the truth in all matters put before her, but she resisted on the grounds that there were things that she simply could not tell them about. When urged on by Cauchon to elaborate, Joan replied, quote, about my father and mother and everything I have done since I have took the road to come to France, I shall willingly swear, but never have I said anything or revealed anything about the revelations made to me by God, except to Charles my king, and even if you wish to cut off my head, I will not reveal them, because I know from my visions that I must keep them secret." End quote. After some back and forth, Joan finally agreed to swear the oath so that proceedings could finally begin. Joan was then asked to pray the Lord's Prayer which she refused to do unless she could first see a priest and confess her sins. The next session was held the following day. Joan was asked about her early life, as well as her exploits in the past two years. It was here that the issue of Joan's voices was first brought up. The tribunal asked all sorts of pointed questions about her voices, which Joan was able to deflect rather easily. She told them in no uncertain terms that she feared failing her voices much more than she feared failing them. At one point, Joan stated that were she not in the grace of God, she would not know how to do anything. When her interrogator asked if she knew for certain that she was in the grace of God, Joan replied, quote, 
If I am not, may God put me there, and if I am, may God keep me there, for I would be the most sorrowful woman in the world if I knew I was not in the grace of God. End quote. Jones' reply reportedly stupefied those in attendance, most of whom were extremely well-read and learned men. The question was intended to entrap her, as Christian doctrine held that no one could know for certain whether or not they were truly in the grace of God. Joan then said that, if she were in a state of sin, her voices would not have come to her, and she wished that everyone could have heard them as clearly as she could. Future sessions understandably fixated on Joan's voices. She revealed the identities of the specific saints with whom she claimed to be in contact. St. Catherine of Antioch, St. Margaret of Antioch, and St. Michael the Archangel. Joan said of the first time she witnessed St. Michael, quote, It was undoubtedly St. Michael who stood before my eyes, and he was not alone, but well accompanied by angels of heaven. I saw them with the eyes of my body just as well as I see you now, and when they left me I wept and wished that they had taken me with them, end quote. Cochon seemed insistent on prying as many details about these saints from Joan as he possibly could. For example, he asked if the saints in her visions were naked or without hair, to which Joan replied, somewhat sarcastically, quote, Do you not think that God has the wherewithal to give them clothes? End quote. When asked if St. Margaret spoke English to her, Joan asked why she would speak English if she was not on the side of England. Joan was clearly growing impatient by this point. She referred the tribunal to the report compiled by the faculty at the University of Poitiers, where she had first been examined at the behest of then Dauphin Charles, and where she was found to be, quote, without evil, but in her was found nothing but good, humility, virginity, devotion, honesty, and simplicity, end quote. Joan continued to insist that all of her actions were undertaken at God's behest. It was asked if it was God who bade her to wear men's clothes, but she dismissed this as a simple matter. The tribunal moved right along, seemingly unaware that the issue of cross-dressing would soon take center stage in this trial. At the next hearing session on March 1st, Joan's interrogators attempted to entrap her by asking her who she believed was the true pope. This was a rather pointed question because mere years prior, the Great Western Schism, wherein two different men claimed the position of pope, had finally ended after decades of confusion and strife. Joan's strategic reply, that the pope was in Rome, may well have rankled the sensibilities of the men in the tribunal, who, up until a few years ago, had pledged their allegiance to the pope who resided in Avignon. With that matter out of the way, however, the line of questioning turned to Joan's alleged writings, specifically the ultimatums to the English that she had dictated during the Siege of Orléans. She acknowledged her authorship of these texts, and went on to make a bold prediction, quote, Before seven years are over, the English will suffer more severe losses than they ever did at Orléans, and they will lose everything in France. This will be accomplished through a great victory that God will send to the French. End quote. The prosecution then attempted to entrap Joan once more, this time with spurious accusations of witchcraft. She was accused of possessing a mandrake, a plant with hallucinogenic properties often utilized in pagan rituals. She flatly denied owning such a plant. She was also accused of performing pagan rituals by what was called the fairy tree near her native Domremy which she also vehemently denied. The next session was held on March 3rd. Joan was asked once again about her cross-dressing, to which she replied that the prelates and theologians at Poitiers had taken note of it, but did not deem it to be an issue. She was then asked about her previous escape attempts. She told them that she would, quote, rather surrender her soul to God than fall into the hands of her enemies, the English, end quote. When asked if she intended to kill herself with her leap from the Tower of Beau Revoir, 
Jones said that she merely commended her soul to God, regardless of the result. She then clarified that her inner voices had chided her for attempting to escape, and that she should not attempt to interfere with God's divine plan in such a way. The tribunal echoed these remarks, warning Joan that if she tried to escape once more, she would be found guilty of heresy. This last session made session 11. Kaushan's English handlers were beginning to grow rather impatient with him and his lack of progress on the trial. It had been three months and still they had no charges that would stick to Joan. The interrogation sessions then moved indoors, to Joan's prison cell. In the first of such sessions, on March 10th, Joan spoke about being captured and about how her voices had told her that she was destined to fall into enemy hands. She said that, had they told her the hour and the place, that she would have made an effort to escape. At the second such session, Joan, when asked why God had chosen her to lead the French armies to victory, replied that, quote, It pleased God to do so through a simple maiden, to humble the king's enemies. End quote. On March 15th, during an interrogation, Joan asked if she might be allowed to attend Mass. She was told that they would consider allowing her to do so if she agreed to stop wearing men's clothes. She then asked to be given a dress of some kind in order to comply with this request, but they denied her. On March 17th, the prosecution finally found something that they believed would stick. When asked about her deference to the church militant, Joan hesitated, as she did not know the difference between the church triumphant, that is to say the church in heaven, and the church militant, that is to say the church on earth. She said, quote, It is my sense that all is one, God's and the church's, and that there should be no difficulty about it. Why do you make such difficulties about its being one in the same thing? End quote. Joan's ordinary trial began on March 26th. Seventy accusations were brought against her. These varied greatly in character. All were founded on no concrete evidence whatsoever, just distortions of the words said by Joan during her interrogations. Some of these accusations had to do with witchcraft, a number had to deal with her inadequate submission to the church militant, and still others had to do with her cross-dressing. If Joan failed to deny any of these accusations, it was tantamount to admitting to them. Joan denied each of these seventy accusations in turn and yet the tribunal continued to grill her on questions of her inadequate submission to the church and about her cross-dressing. Kaushan decided that these would be the two charges that would finally stick. On April 18th, she was brought before the tribunal to be formally charged of both offenses. However, that day, Joan had fallen ill after having eaten a carp gifted to her by Kaushan. She was bled, as was standard medical procedure at the time, and began to feel better. Later that day, she was visited by Jean d'Estevé, a member of the tribunal. When Joan meekly suggested that she may have been intentionally poisoned by Cauchon, Estevé reproached her, calling her a quote-unquote stupid slut. The two then fought each other verbally before Joan once again became ill. When she was brought out to the tribunal for the first of what they called charitable warnings, Joan melodramatically declared that she was in imminent danger of death and asked to be given last rites. Finding Joan to be non-compliant, the tribunal tried again, giving her the second of her charitable warnings on May 2nd. Here, Joan firmly and unequivocally stated her position on the church, saying, quote, I fully believe in the church here below. I believe the church militant cannot err or fail. But as far as what I have said and what I have done, I rely entirely on God, who has made me do everything that I have done. She then challenged them to bring her before the Pope, so she could answer directly to him. In a normal inquisitorial trial, an appeal to the Pope would have to be granted, but in this instance, it was not. 
the members of the tribunal gave some excuse or other, claiming that the Pope was simply too far away for Joan to see him now. By this point, the English had reached the limits of their patience. They demanded an end to this farcical trial as soon as possible. To this end, they threatened Joan with torture. She replied even if they tried to break her on the wheel, she would not give up but a single word. With that tactic having failed to produce results, the tribunal took up an alternative one. On May 24th, Joan was taken to a cemetery, where a platform had been set up. This was intended to lead Joan to believe that she was about to be burned at the stake. A local priest preached a lengthy sermon at Joan, admonishing the kingdom of France and herself, saying, quote, Oh, royal house of France, you have never known dishonor until now. But behold, you're self-dishonored in placing your trust in this woman, this magician, heretical and superstitious. End quote. Joan then spoke up, not to defend herself, but to defend her king, saying that he was a good man and a good Christian. She was promptly silenced by the preacher. Joan was then handed a document and told to sign it, but Joan, being illiterate, did not know what it was that she was signing. The document that she ended up attaching her signature to was an abjuration, a promise by Joan that she would henceforth not wear men's clothing. Satisfied with this, Joan was dismissed back to her prison cell. The English partisans were visibly upset that Joan would not be burned at the stake right then and there, like they apparently believed was about to happen. But Kaushan and the others had something more devious in mind. If the signatory of the abjuration document was to relapse, that is, to go back on their promises, they could then be handed over to the secular arm of the law, and possibly sentenced to death. Sure enough, within three days, Joan had relapsed once again, and worn men's clothes. The circumstances of this are rather murky. There are two differing accounts. One holds that Joan's guards had confiscated her women's clothes and hid them from her, leaving her only men's clothes to wear. Another account holds that she wore men's clothing once again of her own volition, but in an effort to avoid being raped. This account is backed up by a number of eyewitnesses, who claim in that time an English lord attempted to break into her cell and to take her by force. Kaushan quickly found out of Joan's relapse, and the very next day a trial of relapse was held. Regardless of the circumstances, Joan stood by her decision. When asked if she had been instructed once again to don men's clothes by her voices, Joan replied that they told her that she was, quote, damning herself in order to save her own life, end quote. The verdict was quickly reached. Joan of Arc was found guilty of heresy. She was to be turned over to the secular arm of justice and would face execution. As was the common treatment for heretics, she was to be burned alive at the stake. On May 30th, the date of Joan's execution, two priests, Martin Ladvenu and Jean Toutmoyer, entered Joan's cell to administer the Sacrament of Last Rites. One of these priests described what happened next in vivid detail. Quote, when he announced to the poor woman the death that she was about to die that day, which her judges had ordered, and when she understood the hard and cruel death that was coming to her, she began to cry out sorrowfully and pitifully, and to pull her hair. Alas, they treat me so horribly in cruelty, that my body, clean and whole, which was never corrupted, should today be consumed and reduced to ashes. I would prefer to be beheaded seven times than to be burned like that. Alas, if I had been in an ecclesiastical prison to which I had submitted myself, and if I had been guarded by men of the church, not by my enemies, it would not have turned out for me as miserably as this has. Ah, I protest before God, the great judge, the great wrongs and grievances they have done to me. She then made marvelous complaints in place of the oppression and violences done against her. 
After these complaints, the bishop arrived, to whom she said immediately, Bishop, I die because of you. End quote. The priests then heard Joan's final confession, after which she asked if she might partake of the Eucharist one last time. As Joan was a convicted heretic, the priest hesitated, but Kaushan gave him the go-ahead. Afterwards, Joan was led out of her cell into the old marketplace of Rouen, where a stake had been set up. A crowd of about 800 people, mostly English soldiers, was in attendance. Apparently the English were in a haste to see the deed done, as they asked the priest if he would let them do their job by dinner time. One English soldier made a sympathetic gesture to Joan, as, when she asked if she might be allowed to hold a cross, he quickly fashioned one out of some twigs and gave it to her. The bundles of sticks surrounding Joan were then set alight. Joan, being consumed by the flame, reportedly called out to Jesus and the saints in a high voice until the very last moment, at which she cried, Jesus, with her final breath. The English then had Joan's charred remains burned a second time and a third time, so that no trace of her could be found. Joan's execution evoked great pity in those in attendance. Even the most stalwart English partisans shed a tear for Joan on that day. One account comes down to us of an English soldier in particular who, quote, One of the Englishmen, a soldier who detested Joan exceptionally, and had sworn with, that with his own hand he would bring a bundle of sticks to her stake, and at that moment that he did it, he heard Joan crying the name of Jesus in her last moments, and he was so struck with stupor that he had to be led to a tavern nearby so that with the help of drink he could regain some strength. The Englishman then confessed to a friar that he had sinned gravely, and that he repented for what he had done against Joan, whom he now believed to be a holy woman. End quote. Even the executioner himself later confessed that he believed his soul to be damned, as he had burned a holy woman. Following Joan's execution, the English were riding high. Pro-English preachers across the realm told with glee the maiden's death. Finally, the woman who had so seduced the populace with her heresy had been laid to rest. All her numerous crimes against the kingdom had been punished accordingly. English strategians took advantage of the boost in English morale to launch a new offensive. They besieged and took the city of Louvriere, south of Rouen, in early 1432. A new contingent of English troops, fresh off the boat, arrived at the port of Calais in June. To top things off, at the end of 1431, young King Henry VI himself traveled to Paris to be officially crowned as King of France, in a direct response to the coronation of Charles VII two years prior. The French faction scrambled to organize a proper military response. A renewed French offensive ended in failure, with the capture of Charles VII's ally, Duke René of Anjou at the Battle of Bougainville. With things looking desperate for the French cause, one French nobleman, Regnaud of Chartres, prepared to mobilize his secret weapon, Guillaume, the shepherd boy of Gévaudan. Guillaume's origins were quite similar to Joan's. At a young age, he claimed to be in contact with heavenly voices, whom he claimed were urging him to fight on behalf of the beleaguered kingdom of France. Much like Joan, he had traveled to meet King Charles VII, and introduced himself in much the same way as Joan had. And, also like Joan, the king had the shepherd boy sent to the University of Poitiers for examination, whereupon they discovered that he had developed stigmata, wounds similar to those suffered by Jesus Christ on the cross, without any clear physical cause. These stigmata were taken to be a sign that someone was favored by God. The army, desperate for something to rally around, took to Guillaume and heralded him as the new maid of Orléans. Speaking on his predecessor, Guillaume had stated that Joan had been captured and executed because she had become too arrogant and no longer followed God's commands. 
he, Guillaume, would be different. His first taste of battle came in July 1431, at the Battle of Beauvais. Not only was the battle lost by the French, but in the course of battle, Guillaume was very easily captured by the English. He subsequently drowned in a river in a botched escape attempt. The attempt to replace Joan had ended in utter failure, and to this day, Guillaume the shepherd boy of Gévaudan remains an insignificant and slightly humorous footnote in history. Things were indeed looking down for the French cause, but their prospects looked a lot better when, in 1435, Charles VII's propensity for diplomacy over war finally paid off. That year, the Treaty of Arras was signed, ending the Franco-Burgundian War. Now soured from their alliance with Burgundy, things began to worsen for the English, and they began to lose their grip on France. By 1438, it seemed that Joan's prediction that, in seven years' time, the English would lose worse than they ever did at Orléans, was finally coming true. Paris had been retaken two years prior, and the French were now threatening the English stronghold of Normandy. In 1449, the capital of Normandy, Rouen, the place of Joan's imprisonment and execution, was finally taken by the French. Charles VII, after having made a somber entrance into the city, commissioned his counselor, Guillaume Bouet, to make an inquiry into Joan's trial. Thus far, there was little public knowledge of the trial, although many in the French camp correctly suspect a miscarriage of justice. Bouet got to work right away, interviewing participants of the trial. Nearly twenty whole years had elapsed since the trial had been held, and many key figures had long since been deceased. Pierre Cauchon, for example, had died in 1442 thanks to a botched surgery. Nicolas Midi, the priest who had delivered the sermon to Joan on the day that she signed the adjunction, died of leprosy that same year. The vice inquisitor, Jean Lemaitre, seems to have dropped off the face of the earth. Whether he was alive or dead at this time was a mystery to historians. But Bouet interviewed those he still could. Following a preliminary investigation, he quickly concluded that Joan's trial was arbitrary and political in nature. Boy handed the case off to his subordinates, Guillaume d'Estouville and Jean Brayal. After having intensely studied the transcripts from the original trial, d'Estouville and Brayal drew up a list of twelve articles which served as the basis of future interrogations, although these twelve were soon deemed to be insufficient and expanded to twenty-seven. The twenty-seven articles addressed the biased, arbitrary, and political nature of the trial, emphasizing the fact that the true purpose of the trial was not to prove Joan's alleged heresy, but rather to discredit the cause of King Charles VII. They also attested to the fact that Joan was unfairly treated, and that she had no one to represent her in court, nor did the illiterate Joan have anyone who could reliably read documents to her. They also note that Joan, being only a peasant girl of 19, was not nearly as knowledgeable on such matters as those who were prosecuting her, and the prosecution took full advantage of this. These articles make note of Joan's total submission to the church militant, as she stated several times during the trial. Finally, the articles attest to Joan's saintly and Catholic character. The following years saw intense military action in France and elsewhere in Europe. With Normandy secured, the French moved on to attack the Duchy of Gascony in the south of France, the last bastion of English power in the country. There, the French brought the Hundred Years' War to a victorious conclusion at the Battle of Castillon in 1453. The following year, Jean Brayal traveled to Rome to obtain permission from Pope Calixtus III to reopen Joan's trial, with Joan's family acting as plaintiffs. Joan's surviving family members were her brothers, Pierre and Jean, as well as her mother, Isabel. 
A few years prior, the bourgeois of Orléans had taken pity on Joan's now destitute family and invited them to live in the city. On November 7th, 1455, Joan's mother Isabel, accompanied by her two sons and a massive crowd of Orléanais citizens, crowded into the Cathedral of Notre-Dame in Paris. In a solemn ceremony, Isabel addressed the three prelates sent by the Pope, quote, I had a daughter, born in a legitimate marriage, whom I fortified worthily with the sacraments of baptism and confirmation, and raised in the fear of God and respect for the tradition of the Church, as much as her age and the simplicity of her condition permitted, so well that, having grown up in the middle of fields and pastures, she frequently went to church and every month, after due confession, received the sacrament of the Eucharist despite her young age, and gave herself to fasting and prayer with such great devotion and fervor, on account of the necessities then so grave in which the people found themselves, and which she sympathized with all her heart. Nevertheless, certain enemies betrayed her in a trial concerning the faith, and without any aid given to her innocence in a perfidious, violent, and inquisitous trial, without the shadow of right, they condemned her in a damnable and criminal fashion, and made her die most cruelly by fire." End quote. Isabel's speech moved the papal prelates greatly, and so Joan's trial of rehabilitation began later that month. Over the course of Joan's posthumous trial of rehabilitation, some 115 witnesses would be interviewed. These ranged from fellow peasants who knew her as a child in Domremy, to knights such as John de Metz, and noblemen such as Jean the Duke of Alençon and Jean de Dunois, the Bastard of Orléans. From their testimonies, a very clear picture of Joan emerges, the picture of a selfless, virtuous, and incredibly brave and iron-willed girl. These testimonies were collected from January to May of 1456, and were compiled into a central document. Over the course of that June, a panel of theologians and experts in canon law analyzed said document, cross-referencing it with the pre-existing transcripts of Joan's original trial. By July, they had reached a verdict. On July 7th, the official pronouncement of Joan's rehabilitation took place. Speaking before a crowd in the Cathedral of Rouen, the Archbishop of Rheims announced, quote, We, in session of our court and having God before our eyes, say, pronounce, decree, and declare that the said trial and sentence of condemnation being tainted with fraud, calumny, inquiry, contradiction, and manifest error of fact and law, including the abjuration, execution, and all their consequences to be null, invalid, worthless, and without effect, and annihilated. We break and annul them. We proclaim that Joan did not contract a taint of infamy, and she shall be, and is, washed clean of such. And if need be, we wash her of such, absolutely. End quote. Following this pronouncement, a copy of the abjuration document was symbolically torn up. Celebrations followed across France, not the least in Orléans, the city that Joan had delivered from its fate. In several senses, Joan's rehabilitation provided closure, not only for her mother, who died only two years later, but for the French nation itself. After having endured literally a hundred years of war, France could finally begin the healing process, beginning with the dispensation of true justice. Joan's influence on history is rather significant. Before her arrival on the scene, the Kingdom of France was in dire straits and on the brink of collapse. After her departure, it was only two decades more before the French were able to achieve near-total victory over their English and Burgundian adversaries. Modern historians have asserted that Joan managed to transfer the conflict of the Hundred Years' War, which originally concerned some arcane dynastic matters, into, quote, a passionately popular war of national liberation, end quote. 
a rather impressive feat in an era that predated nationalism as such. From the period immediately following Joan's rise, her praises were sung by people from Orléans to Prague to Venice and nearly everywhere in between. One of the earliest works on Joan of Arc was authored by Christine de Pizan, perhaps the most prolific female author of medieval Europe. Her 60 stanza poem, The Song of Joan of Arc, was composed in 1429, just after Charles VII's coronation. It reads in part, quote, And you, blessed maid, should you be forgotten in all this? For God has honored you so much that you undid the rope that held France tightly bound. Could one praise you enough when you have given peace to this country humiliated by war? You, Joan, were born in a prosperous hour. Blessed be he who created you, maid ordained by God in whom the Holy Spirit in whom there was and is the greatest generosity with noble gifts, poured his great grace and never refused one of your requests. How can we ever reward you? How could one say of anyone else or of the great deeds of the past? Moses, on whom God in his generosity bestowed many blessings and virtues, by a miracle led his people out of Egypt without tiring of it. In the same way you have led us from evil, elected maid. When we reflect on your person... You, who are a young maid, to whom God has given the strength and power to be a champion, who gives France her breast of peace and sweet nourishment, and casts down the rebels. See how this goes beyond nature. For if God had performed so many miracles through Joshua, who conquered so many places and routed so many enemies, he was a strong and powerful man. But after all, a woman, a simple shepherdess, braver than any man ever was in Rome. For God, this was such an easy thing to do. End quote. It should suffice to say that Joan did not enjoy such a reputation across the Channel in England. Their defeat in the Hundred Years' War proved rather traumatic for the English, damaging their national pride. Thus, the English almost uniformly portrayed Joan as some sort of villain. An example of this can be found in William Shakespeare's historical play, Henry VI, Part One, where Joan is portrayed as an evil sorceress, whose execution was well-deserved. It was not until the fall of the French monarchy in the 18th century that the English relented. It is perhaps owing somewhat to the controversial nature of Joan of Arc that she was not officially canonized, that is to say, made a saint by the Catholic Church, until the year 1920. It is difficult to overstate the cultural influence Joan of Arc has had in the years preceding her death. For one, the outlines of her story are rather incredible that a peasant girl was able to lead an army to victory against one of the most formidable militaries of the medieval period is in and of itself unusual and astounding, and owing to the wealth of interviews conducted during her trials of condemnation and rehabilitation, Joan remains one of the most extensively documented individuals of the medieval period. Joan has been the subject of everything from paintings to books to sage plays and operas. As previously mentioned, Joan had become a symbol of French nationalism in an era that predated nationalism. Joan became a renowned French national hero, and a figure analogous to George Washington in America, or Mahatma Gandhi in India. Moreover, Joan remains a model for women to this very day, an example of a powerful, willful woman. Speaking for myself, as one who is neither French, nor religious, nor a woman, Joan of Arc is a great inspiration to me as well. And that concludes our series on the life and times of Joan of Arc. I sincerely hope you enjoyed listening to this as much as I did writing it, and I'd like to thank you once more for listening. Do be sure to tune in again in two weeks when we begin our next series on the Congo Free State.
In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, etc., please feel free to email them to me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Additionally, you can address these questions to me via Twitter or Facebook, links to which should be found in the episode description. Also, be sure to visit the Patreon page and the eBay store if you wish to support the show financially. Anyway, until two weeks from now, this has been the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.